0: So I gave him a ring and I said, can I buy fabric from you? He said, he can't buy from me, you can go and see my agent. Went to see the agent and I said, who makes the best shirts in the world? And he said, there was a little factory down in Clacton in, in Essex and he makes the best shirts in the world. He makes bespoke made-to-measure shirts for Turnbull and Asker and Harvey and Hudson, which are two of the shops on German Street. So off I went. I, I, I got in my Morris Minor with a big hole in the floor and I drove from Lancashire down to Clacton with some fabric in the back so said, will you make some shirts? From an Aston
1: Martin to a multi-million pound shirt company, Nicholas Charles Tirrett Wheeler is one of the country's most successful entrepreneurs. After being left £8,000 from a great aunt, Nick used the money to purchase the English dream, an Aston Martin DB1. One year later, Nick sold the same car for an eye-watering £75,000 profit. This profit became the funding that set Nick up to become the powerhouse he is now. Nick founded the shirt brand Charles Tirrett as an undergraduate in 1986, the same year I was born, after being frustrated that shirts seemed too expensive. Using his middle names Charles and Tirrett, his initial marketing budget consisted of £99 to print 5,000 leaflets and £199 Amstrad word processor to sell shirts by mail order. For several years, the company was just a hobby, alongside Nick's full-time job. However, by 2002, Charles Tirrett had stores in London, Paris and New York, and several catalogues were being produced each year. Now, the figures that are thrown around with regard to the luxury shirt company are rather more proliferate. For example, in the year ending the 1st of August 2015, Charles Tirrett sells up £173 million and profits rose to £18.6 million. Staggering success. Today, Nick and his equally impressive wife chrissy rucker the founder of the white company live in a village outside of oxford with their four children and pets taking high achieving to new levels and now we get to hear from the inspirational entrepreneur himself so nick how are you doing this morning Uh, Yeah, no, not too bad. So, you know, we were just doing uh, Rich's usual sound check and uh, he happened to ask you an interesting question, which is what you had for breakfast. Would you like to share with us where you've just been and what you've had for breakfast and why?
0: I had absolutely no breakfast because um, I am on an 18-hour fast. I've been reading this book called How Not to Die, which is the sort of book you read when you get to 53 it tells you to become a non-drinking vegan with a, with a couple of days fast, which is uh, what I'm doing. It's very exciting. And do you believe everything you read? I think I've sort of fallen into the uh, the new, the sort of millennium problem of not really being able to read anything. So I actually have to do it on an Audible book because I lose concentration when I read. Same here. I can't do anything other than Audible. So I listen to Audible and I find my, even then, my mind sort of wanders a bit. So uh, do I believe everything I hear on my Audible book is probably more the question. And it's sort of more that I sort of zone in and out. But the bits I hear sound quite compelling actually. It's Mm. quite a good book. So you break the ice with a quick fire round uh, beyond what you've
1: had for breakfast. So university, academia or university of life?
0: University of
1: life. Go on. Why? What have you learned in the university of life that you can't learn in a real university?
0: Well, I went, I did go to real university. I think the great thing about real university for me is it gives you you an opportunity to start a business under the umbrella of university. Unless you want to do something quite specific and valuable, like become a doctor or an engineer or something where they actually work you quite hard. Mm. You can end up doing a subject where you don't really enjoy it. Um, I did geography, which I had really no interest in at all. I only I only did geography to get into Cambridge and was slightly surprised when Cambridge said they didn't want me. So I ended up at Bristol doing geography. I was doing sort of, you know, six or eight hours, lectures a week and I didn't really learn very much. I think life is about getting on with people. That's the most, you know, the old cliche is that it's all about people, whatever you're doing. I suppose the only thing I did learn at university was to get on with people. You know, you build some great friends but I think uh, you equally do that in uh, just getting out there and doing something interesting and different. So, university is 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 not overrated. Really, I think it's overrated. Okay,
1: fair enough. And uh, you've just travelled in from Oxford, as I said. So, Oxford or London? I cannot possibly
0: say one or the other. I absolutely love having both. Okay, good um, answer. It, it's sort of it's a, it's a, it's all about contrast. Life is about contrast. Fair enough. So, shirts or ties? Speaking of contrast. I have to go with shirts. I have to go with shirts. I think it's an absolute disaster for mankind. But ties are sort of fewer people are wearing ties, which you're is You're not wearing really a tie right, right now. It's
1: disappointing.
0: No, well, I only I only took it off as I was coming in because I knew this wasn't a this wasn't a video. <laughs> <session> <laughs> are you, are you just, offended that we're both in? It's a very warm room. I, I, am, I am I am extremely offended. You both look extremely scruffy. I know, I'm no really sorry. Chance, My chance in life. Um, okay, so you're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. So what would they be? Well, now that I've become a non-alcoholic vegan, I would not even dream of taking a rum punch. The thing is, if you're a non-alcoholic vegan who does
1: intermittent fasting, then technically the three things you need are yourself, your mind, and your pure
0: lifestyle and love for the universe. (laughs) You're you're answering the question for me, which is extremely convenient, so thank you very much for that. What What do I love? I love old cars, so I'd bring a little old car. don't know how big the island is, and I don't know if it has a road. But to me, cars, old cars are like art. So I could sit there staring at the car most of the time. I take a camera because I love taking photographs. It could get a bit boring, actually, if you're sitting on an island with, I don't even know, it's got a tree. There's yeah. a tree. There's a tree. I could take some sort of quite artistic pictures of a tree. And I love my business. Can I take my business with me? Absolutely. You've got no customers on the <laughs> island, but
1: you know, you might as well have your, your child's car in a customer's now, so That's fun. <laughs> okay, well, look, you love cars. So, Morris Minor or McLaren? Oh I absolutely definitely go for the Morris smile Morris Meyer every day. Okay, good. Uh life as an entrepreneur married or single? Um I would go married actually. Yeah. Married. I guess it's
0: quite unique your wife is an entrepreneur as well. So I think I'm very I mean the thing about an entrepreneur entrepreneur is especially at the beginning it it can be quite stressful and it can be it's quite high risk and you worry. Basically you worry about cash.
1: There's nothing more British than the statement that it can be quite stressful and you do <laughs> worry
0: so uh, and I think so, so Charlie so, so, with so one the of facts. the great th- but one of the great things about being married to an entrepreneur is that you effectively have you have two businesses Chrissy started the white company before we got married and it's been a it, it, it it's been nice having two businesses because you can take that little bit more of a risk in in I could take a little bit more of a risk in Charles turrett Knowing that if it really did everything go wrong and it did go bust, we still had the white company. That does make sense, especially if you've got a few, if you, you know if your children start coming along or you know you you just suddenly think I can't take this risk because if it goes wrong I can't do it. But if you've got two businesses, you can. Okay, so from Ludlow to Eton to Bristol to Bain, your journey was a varied one. Where did
1: you pick up the inspiration that has got you to where you are today?
0: I always wanted to start my own business. For an entrepreneur, the only thing you have to do is you have to really want to start your own business. And once you decided that, you just have to go and do something. It doesn't matter what it is. I think a lot of people want to sort of, uh, you know, everybody wants to start an Amazon or a Google or a Facebook. But ultimately, not everybody can do that. So you go and start anything. And I think when I was tiny, I remember my father used to take me, we, we used to go and uh, we had a little flower business and literally, this is literally when I was about five or six, and I used to go. we used to get up really early in the morning, pick these flowers, put them in boxes, take them to Wolverhampton Market. And that, to me, was just magic. You could pick flowers out of the garden that, to me, cost nothing, and you take them to Wolverhampton Market and they give you some cash. And it was just magic. And I think that was sort of the inspiration for wanting to have my own business. I used to go into work with my father on Saturday mornings. I'd open the post. And if there was a check, he'd sort of explain that he made agricultural machinery... And it was people buying a, a hedge cutter that he'd bashed into shape, and they were paying more for the hedge cutter than the metal cost in the first place. And it was just—it was just magic. And you know, in terms of
1: going after the shirt industry, did you have one of those sort of insights of you wanted to work somewhere where you know there's enough demand, everyone has one, so how can you stand out? Or was it just not. No, that it, kind was, of... it was. It
0: was. I—I've never been one to sort of really sit down and think things through. I just decide on something and I go and do it. Mm. So, you know, I had a Christmas tree business, which was a disaster. I had a, sh- I had a, um, a photography business that was sort of all right, but wasn't going to do anything special. I had a shoe business, which was an absolute disaster. And when the shoe business didn't work, I thought, what can I do instead of shoes? I know, I'll do shirts. Have you ever taken investment for Charles Terra No, okay. absolutely, definitely not. Amazing. No way.
1: So, and the whole business is 100% owned, or how does that work?
0: Uh, the business is, well, it's 95% owned, actually. 5% is is owned by, by a guy who I met at, Bain & Company, which is my only job I ever had, and, he, and we worked together for 15 years. Lovely. Okay. I mean, that's really, really rare. I think it's really, really important, though. You know, people always said to me, look, as an entrepreneur, you can either have a small slice of a large pie or a large slice of a small pie. And I think that's true if you're the sort of entrepreneur who wants to start a business, build it up, sell it, move on. If you're the sort of guy who wants to start a business and you want to make it a lifetime business, and I think I'm quite rare in that I wanted to make it a lifetime business, I knew that I wanted, effectively, I wanted a large slice of a large pie. I've always been a bit greedy. And when you say it like that, it sounds like you'd never sell. Is that right? I'd never sell.
1: Oh, okay. Never sell. I guess... You know, your name is on the brand, so...
0: Yeah, my name's on the brand. And also, if, if anybody can give me a good reason to sell, then they may well sell. But nobody's ever managed to give me a good reason to sell.
2: Fair enough. Was it always the case that, from completely from founding the company, that you were never going to raise investment? And do you think that if you had raised investment, it would be bigger or it would be something more than you wanted today?
0: I think there's a good chance if I'd raised... If, if I'd raised, raised investment in a sensible way, and you can raise investment in a sensible way, then there is a good chance it would be bigger. There's probably a higher chance that I wouldn't be involved in the business. You know, I think often an entrepreneur is is different to a guy who runs a big business, and very few entrepreneurs can run big businesses. And typically, at some point, they, they screw up and they get kicked out, quite rightly. You know, when my business actually really took off was when I brought in a chief exec to run the business, and he did a much better job than I ever did. I read a really good post the other
1: day, which was called, I'm a founder, not a CEO. Yeah, and so uh, quite a quite a classic problem, isn't it? Okay, let's go back to the start a little bit. So, uh, I guess this wasn't the case of first time lucky. You've just described a bunch of um, failed experiences. So, how did those experiences shape you? By the time
0: you got round to shirts, what was that sort of unique insight? What did you know that you were going to do right this time? I think every time you every time you try to do something and it doesn't work, you learn a valuable lesson, and you learn a lesson that you're never going to learn in a book. People always say to me, "What's your favourite business books?" I mean, I don't, I don't. I've told you, I don't. How not read to books, die, but. Yeah, How Not to Die is a good business book. Actually, it is a bloody good business book, because it is. I mean, as Warren Buffett says, you know, compound growth is the eighth wonder of the world. If you're a guy, if you sort of go, go through life and you're very successful and you die at 50, there's a big difference between being very successful and dying at 90. Because what happens between 50 and 90, as Warren Buffett is a bloody good example, Warren Buffett's now nearly 90. Uh, age 50, you know, he was a successful guy, but not that successful. But if you can grow up 20% a year every year having made some money, you end up being extremely successful, because compound growth is the eighth wonder of the world. So, how not to die is a pretty good, pretty good book for for building a big business. True, whatever he's doing is working for him. Although I did watch a documentary about
1: him that shows that he goes to McDonald's every single morning of his life and orders exactly that the same breakfast. Well. And do you no, see he what he does with the change? He
0: doesn't always have exactly the same breakfast. Oh, No, but the change—he decides he's super... what he's going to have, and his wife puts the change in the car, so exactly he has the exact correct. change. He has exactly the $4 right four dollars sixty-seven cents.
2: Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he always pays in cash with it his is coins. It's absolutely
0: amazing. <laughs> and it's amazing he's still alive
1: yeah i mean yeah considering that's his diet anyway moving on so yes yeah, so you'd learned you'd learned some mistakes and then you started charles terrett so how did the story start what was your first uh, insight where did you open your first store it was catalogs as i understand it like take us through some of that well journey. i started
0: off i mean i started it i was at university okay i was doing geography so i wasn't exactly working that hard but i still had to go to the odd lecture so the only way i could sell shirts really was mail order and that was, uh, you know, 1986, which probably nobody remembers 1986. You certainly don't. Nope. Is um, was, 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 a, was a time, well, it was a time when, you know, mail order was, was quite down and dirty. You know, mail order was big books, Grattan's, Littlewood's. There were some big books that were sort of, uh, you know, it wasn't good quality stuff. It was just cheap and cheerful. So it was quite different selling a, a good quality product by mail order. But I had no choice because I had to go. I was at university. I didn't have a telephone. I couldn't take credit card. You know, I just did it by trial and error. You know, like a lot of people, the first thing they do is they, they, typically the first thing people do is they have the idea. The second thing they do is they want to go out and raise money. And what they do, if they're lucky, they do raise money. And what they find is they spend that money really quite quickly. Because when you raise money, it's sort of, it's easy come. And easy come is easy go. And and what you do is you spend it incredibly quickly and easily. What I did is I just grafted away. You know, I spent four years, two years at university. And then two years, I, I had a job with Bain & Company, which is an American consultancy. And um, I just ran the business on the side. So I was doing £12,000 a year, didn't have any investment, didn't really have any money. But I just learned a hell of a lot. You just learn about the business. And, uh, you know, when I did then make some money, which is on that classic car, on the Aston Martin DB1, when I was just incredibly lucky. So I made 75000 quid plus my original £8,000. And I went out and I just blew it straight away. And I ended up, you know, I in my first year after that I lost seventy five thousand quid or seventy thousand quid. So I lost the whole lot. Oh on top of that or that whole amount? I lost that whole amount. Okay. That whole, so I was effectively back to square one. But it was which was equally another really good lesson. You know, I could easily have taken in investment. Somebody could have invested, you know, I'd done it for 12, four years and people sort of say, Okay, it's got the inkling of a good idea. I'll give you seventy five thousand quid for thirty percent of the business. And I'd have gone out and, I, and I'd have lost that 75,000 quid because I just, it just sort of turned up and I lose it. And then I've given away 30% of the business and I haven't got any money. And that investor is going to say, right, I'll put another 70,000 in, but that's another 30%. So that's, you know, you know I'm already a minority and, and, and a year later I'm sacked.
1: If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit-ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So just on the subject of of shirts, I mean, you weren't sitting in your bedroom making these shirts. You mentioned the catalogue, you mentioned mail
0: order, etc. But you weren't creating a digital product. Like, How did you make these shirts? Where did they come from? I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm not somebody who thinks things through. If you've got to do something, you get out and do it. So I decided I was going to do a shirt business because the shoe business hadn't worked. And I was talking to a friend and I said, I'm starting a shirt business. And they said, where are you going to get the shirts? And I said, gosh, that's a really good question. So I thought, where am I going to get the shirt? So I said, I don't know. And they said, I've got a friend whose father makes cotton in Lancashire. Why don't you give him a ring? So I gave him a ring and I said, can I buy fabric from you? He said, he can't buy from me. You can go and have to see my agent. Went to see the agent. Said, can I buy some fabric? He said, yeah, you can buy some fabric. And I said, who makes the best shirts in the world? And he said, there was a little factory down in Clacton in, in Essex. And he makes the best shirts in the world. He makes bespoke made-to-measure shirts for Turnbull and Asser and Harvey and Hudson, which are two of the shops on German Street. So off I went. I, I I got in my Morris Minor with a big hole in the floor and I drove from Lancashire down to Clacton. And I said, and there was some fabric in the back, said, will you make some shirts? OK. <laughs> how did you How did you market this? So you mentioned Mailord's Catalogues. No, well, yeah. So what I did is I, I saw an ad in the back. I always loved photography. And there was a, an ad in the back of Amateur Photographer, which was a magazine, I don't know if it still exists. But it was, you could have 5,000 leaflets printed for 99 quid. And so I got... Uh, Eight shirts, took one photo of them, and I had this A5 leaflet printed one side with eight shirts. And then I sat in my room at my Amstrad PCW152, uh, which was an extremely good little word processor, tapped in names and addresses of... I had a second cousin who was in the 17th, 21st Lancers, and he gave me that old address book. I tapped in names and addresses from old officers from the 17th, 21st Lancers, and I sent them a, a handwritten letter with a hand signed with a... You know, trying to make it really personal with a little leaflet with eight shirts on and people started to order them rather slowly. So for, just give us some,
1: um, well, not even ROI conversion rate on that. So 5,000 leaflets, do you remember how many shirts you sold? Well,
0: the, the first four years I sold, well, I did £12,000 a year and I was selling them at £28.75. So I'm sure you can do the maths. You, you presume incorrectly. <laughs> Absolutely not. And also, Bane rejected me,
1: and was it probably <laughs> because of my mathematical abilities. Pardon?
2: About four hundred and thirty. There we go. Four
0: hundred and thirty.
1: Okay. Look, on the subject of uh, of marketing and getting it out there, like, how did you grow it? So, I mean, that, that's the first five thousand. That's the first four years. That's fine.
0: So, what about beyond that? I then discovered something called twenty doubles, which were little ads. On the front page, typically on the front page of the Times or the Telegraph, which was a 20 centimetre double column ad, which, again, you probably don't remember. They used to, every t- every day, there was an ad in the bottom right-hand corner of the front page or quite, a, or maybe the front of the business. And it would be a t- what we call a two-stage ad. So it was a coupon ad in the day. This is obviously before before the internet. You could get distressed space. Mm. So the Times would sell it. If they, didn't, if they hadn't sold it the day before, they'd sell it cheap. And uh, you put a little advert saying, you know, German Street shirts at great prices, and, and they'd fill in their name and address, and they'd send off. And what they would get is, what very early on, what we, what we came up with was the idea of brass collar stiffeners, which sounds slightly ridiculous, but it was a sort of bit of a novelty, and it was something that differentiated our shirts from any other shirts. So they got a free pair of brass collar stiffeners, And, uh, you know, we, we suddenly worked out that you could spend, you know, a couple hundred quid, get a distress-based ad, send it out, and you get 2,000 people would request a catalogue. And it sort of went from there.
1: That's like a, a unique gimmick almost, right? Uh, to hook the customers on. So, but that's not really something I don't think your brand is known for nowadays. I mean, was there a point where you just stopped doing stuff like that?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting that because actually I think our brass collar stiffeners are still, you know, this. Is, I suppose you know what was that? That was twenty eight years ago Maybe when we started It's not a gimmick them. anymore. It, it's well, I think. Well, it, in in many ways, I think we don't actually push it enough. It is a bit of it is a bit of a gimmick, but it's actually a really nice touch. You know, having brass collar stiffness. and I, I get a bit cross when you know our brochures, which you know I don't do the brochures anymore, but I, I you know, when I. When I see the brochures, I I get a bit cross that we're not pushing them a little bit more because I think that is part of the heritage and it's part of what makes us different.
1: Has anyone ever told you that they just have no natural understanding of how to write down the name of your brand? Has has anyone had that process? Whilst whilst I was writing the interview,
0: a lot of people that. I mean, I can say Charles (laughs) Tirrette after I've
1: practiced. But it's so interesting because actually, you know, if you were to work with advertisers or whatever, they'd say like you can't call the brand that because no one can say it. But then it's <laughs> almost its own charm. It's probably the only brand I would see on a high street that you take a second take at because you just can't say it Yeah, in your mind. Yeah,
0: it's not the cleverest thing in the world.
1: But in a, in, in a weird way, it is because you remember it as that brand you can't really pronounce. Yeah. So then, and you say that, you describe it like that to someone else. They're like, oh, yeah, that Charles Tord something. And you're like, actually, it makes Well, it's a bit sense. like, I mean,
0: it's, a, I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a bit like, I mean, there are there are other brands a bit like that. I mean, Vilbraquin. I don't mm. know quite know Vilbraquin, Vilbraquin. And even so, someone like Ralph Lauren. Oh, Zegna. not even Heren. going to bother trying to say Zegner. the first name. Yeah. Yeah. I heard
2: somebody call a, a bar chain Alberoni. That's all by one. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just they, the, the old logo used to be all one word. And they, called it, they thought it was Italian. <laughs> that is really good.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, so anyway, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but you must have had a few people tell you along the journey that, you know, you've got to change it. Yeah,
0: we had, when it became a big deal was when the internet came along, because, you know, I called it Charles Stewart. My name's Nicholas Charles Stewart Wheeler. But Nick Wheeler is just,
1: but it's fascinating. I mean,
0: Nick Wheeler's a very good British name. Yeah, but it doesn't sound great, does it? Nick Wheeler shirts. Nicholas Wheeler shirt. I mean, not I mean, now when you're trying to make it sound crap like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. And, and also, I suppose I just quite like the fact it was sort of hiding behind my middle names as well, in a way. Yeah, that makes um, sense. You know, and Charles II also, you know, being German street, sort of being oldie English and traditional, Charles Stewart sounded quite old English and traditional.
1: Just on the topic of you wanting to hide behind your middle names, um, are you publicity shy? How has that developed
0: over the years? How do you feel about that? You know, I'm just a guy with a shirt business, so I suppose it's sort of, you know, it's not the most interesting thing in the world. But actually what I love doing is I love trying to persuade young people to start their own business if starting their own business is the right thing for them. Because I think a lot of people have, there's a bit of a mystique around starting your own business. And people think, you know, they only see, they see the huge successes and they think if they start a business, they have to be a huge success without realizing that you can just have, you know, I have loved pretty much every day of my life. You know, because I love the business. So I love trying to get other people to to um, to um start a business. So from publicity from that point of view, I quite like. People, what people tend to want to do is sort of talk numbers, which I find, you know, people sort of say, you know, you must be very rich. I don't feel very rich because I just want to grow the business. You know, I think living in a, a small house is much better than living in a huge house. And I've sort of, to be honest, I've sort of done both. You know, and actually there's a hell of a lot to be said for just keeping things simple, And, you know, you're incredibly lucky if you don't have to worry about money. But it's not something I want to, you know, if you go out and start seeking publicity, people will tend to try and shoot you down. It seems to be a sort of peculiarly English thing.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I think just where I challenge um, what you just said, which is really interesting. So, you know better than anyone how hard starting a business is and even harder than that is sustaining one. And yet, at the same time, you're like, you know, I'm just a guy with a shirt business. But it's not really true. There's Charles Turret stores on most high streets, and that is an impressive feat. Yet you want to encourage people to go and start businesses. And so I think from a comms point of view, I think what's really valuable is actually sharing just how bloody hard it is to have a business that you started 31 years ago that's still on the high street and growing. So... On Mm -hmm. that note, can you take us through some of the toughest moments in the 31 years? It would have been the really low points that you've had to have realistically a conversation with yourself about whether to carry on, if you can carry on, what the circumstances were, because I think that's what's really valuable to listeners.
0: My lowest point was when I went bust, which was in um, 1994. And that was a... That was a real disaster. I suppose I mean, when I was 29, you know, life had sort of gone quite well. You know, everything had gone sort of well for me. You know, I enjoyed school and university was sort of quite fun. I didn't get a very good degree. But, you know, I then got into Bain, which was sort of a good job. And then I had my own business and it was that was sort of fun. It was good. You know, after those first four years of, of, of being rather slow growing, it was growing well. And, you know, I got to 29. I was doing two and a half million pound sales, making 250,000 pounds a year, which was, you know, a hell of a lot for a 29-year-old. And it was great. And how many employees um, did you have? We had six, actually, so not very many. Mm. It was a bit of a... It was it's respectable a, it, numbers for six people, though. I mean, the businesses actually I really admire in many ways, although, in fact, funny enough, it's not a business that I'd actually want. They, they, they build great businesses with, with, with very few people, because I just think that's very clever. Said, like, someone who's looking forward to the AI revolution. No, well, I, no, well I'm, I, I'm not... I'm not actually, because what I, I mean, the, one of the things I love about the business is the thing that makes me really happy is, is when somebody who works at Charles Tyrett comes up to me and says, "This is the best job I've ever had in my life." We subcontracted the call centre, we subcontracted the warehouse. It's a bit like you know, Fever Tree is a I don't know, a huge huge valuation. I think they have about 36 people in the business. You know, everything's subcontracted, and and that's a very clever thing to do. It's not something I personally want to do, but it was. Actually, at the time, that's sort of what we were doing. We'd subcontracted stuff out,
1: okay, so you went bust. What happened?
0: I went bust basically, I went bust because I mean this is my the real lesson for entrepreneur or the thing I just tell entrepreneur, anybody who's prepared to listen is that if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to you have to focus. It is a bit of a cliche because. A lot of people will tell you to focus. You know, it's about focusing on something and concentrating on one thing. But you never really believe it until you have to make the mistake yourself to really understand what it means. And what I did is is the business was going well, as I say. And I got a bit bored. I sort of thought, actually, you know, I can do a lot more than this. And I went out and bought a children's clothes business, which had five or six shops. So we was it was a retailer of children's clothes. We were a mail-order company selling men's shirts. Quite what I thought I was doing, buying a retail children's clothes business, when I knew all about selling shirts to men by mail order, God knows. But I lost more money in three months than I made in the last three years, and we went bust. That was a real shock. We were slightly legged over as well, actually, by, by one of our main, our only shirt supplier, actually, at the time, which is a rather long and boring story. But that's another interesting lesson, is that it's quite a, this is quite a sad fact of life. Don't trust people with your life, <laughs> Or with your business, well, it's
1: more just don't put all your eggs in one basket. Just don't put all your that. eggs in one basket. Yeah. Okay, so 1994, you've gone bust. What does that mean in a practical reality? You know, did you have to let everyone go? Did you go down to the bare bones? How did
0: you build it like a phoenix? Um, what it what it actually was is is the, the ultimate. The reason we went bust is our main shirt supplier came to us and he said, because I'd always you know like all good shirt makers, I was always trying to get 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 the price down so i kept saying can you get the price down and what he was doing he was making all our shirts at the time in egypt in one factory and he was the agent and we were giving the order to him he was giving it to the factory in egypt the factory was sending them straight to us sending him an invoice and he was adding a pound a shirt and sending us an invoice and so i kept saying to the uh, to to him i want i want the shirts at a lower price and so he kept going back to the factory saying give the shirts at a lower price. So then the factory called me and said, look, this guy's driving me nuts. You know, why are you using him? You know, I make all your shirts for you. Why don't you go direct? So I rang the agent and I said, look, the factory said, why do we go direct? I'm not going to go direct because I completely respect what you've done for me, blah, blah, blah. And he said, don't worry, I'll sort it out. I'll find somebody else. Will you just sign get, sign this debenture and um, we'll sort it out? I didn't really know what a debenture was. I thought a debenture was free tickets at rugby or something. I don't know, twicken <laughs> So I signed this dementia. Two weeks later, he walked in with a receiver and put me on receivership. What he did is he said he, he delivered shirts the day before, and our terms of business were payment on delivery. In reality, we never paid on delivery. We paid a couple of days later when we checked the shirts, but that was sort of, you know, but our terms were payment on delivery. So I hadn't paid. He walked in with a receiver and he said, I'm putting you on receivership because you haven't paid. And what he'd done is he'd organized, he wanted to buy the business himself. So it was all a bit of, it was actually a bit of a stitch up. It didn't help that we were short of cash. I mean, I could have paid you. Know, I said, well, that's ridiculous. I'll pay for the shirts you delivered yesterday. He said, no, it's too late. Now you're in receivership. So it was a, it, it was a bit of a scam. But what we had to do, the business was, um, it was too small really to be on anybody else's radar. And I guess if you didn't have investors, et cetera, your
1: support network was probably quite small in terms of who could actually help you. Did you have advisors, mentors? What was
0: your support network like? I had the, the bank were incredibly sympathetic, which was Nat West. Who completely saw it as a complete stitch up. And really importantly, and this is sort of uh, again, you know, am I the luckiest person in the world? Yes, I am. Because it ended up, we had to buy the business back from the receiver. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, did, I, did, I didn't have any money. God knows why, but my father mortgaged his house and lent me 250,000 quid. And he could have, you know, we could have gone bust again. And, you know, I will always be indebted to him for that. He just sort of had faith in me. Um, I always used to think he thought I was a bit of an idiot, but he obviously thought I was sort of. Do
1: you have brothers or sisters?
0: Yeah, I've got two brothers and a sister, yeah. Okay. Older, younger? I've got an elder brother, an elder sister, and a younger brother. Okay. So interesting. Um, Are you the only entrepreneur in the family? No, my elder sister's an entrepreneur. And in many ways, my younger brother is an entrepreneur, but he's a we have a slightly different sort of genetic thing. Where I just I'm a bit of a plodder, so I start a business and I just bloody well keep going. He's sort of a bit more he starts a business, and he wants it to work straight away, and he pushes like mad, and if it doesn't work, then he moves on to something else. So we're sort of, there's just a, one slight sort of different sort of gene in there somewhere that makes it slightly different in our approach. Did you pay the um, 250 grand back? I paid the 250 grand back. I paid it back very... He charged me 10% interest, actually, which at the time wasn't that bad. It sounds quite... but you know, and, and actually, I paid it back, paid it back really quickly. You know, it, was, it was just a great little business. You know, it was generating cash, and I paid it back. It took about six months to pay back. That's fantastic.
1: Okay, so uh, that was the lowest moment. Did anything like, like, like that happen again? Or you mentioned a lot about being the luckiest man alive and very I charmed. Think it, so um, does it just go up
0: No, no, it happened. The same thing happened again, actually, in 2005. Okay, can you take us through that? 2005. Well, I always think with an, as an entrepreneur, the, the, the one thing you have to do is you have to decide who is the right person to run my business. And for a long time, it will be the entrepreneur. But it comes a point when it's no longer the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur needs to get in somebody to run the business. So I brought in a, uh, I brought in a guy to run the business, and he came from Ralph Lauren. He'd never actually run a business before, but we um, went down a route of going into diversifying out of just men's clothing, men's shirts, into women's clothing and children's clothing, which is like God, never how learning from your mistakes. I? That's amazing. Never learning from your mistakes. <laughs> this and, is a great um, lesson
2: for everybody listening, I guess. Uh, <laughs> that's the main thing. You're passing it on. So you've had two busts, and right. both
1: of them were related to. Um... Well, the
0: second the second wasn't a bust, but it was damn close to a bust. But both related to children's clothing. So, saying like you're just never going to gonna go children's into children's clothing again. is not. Fa- if, if I go into children's clothing again, as Steve Redgrave would say, you can shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to be clear, that quote is not
1: related to Steve Redgrave talking about children's clothing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess just not enough children need shirts. Who knew?
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right.
1: So, um, look, just to wrap up there. So what was the difference between the second time round? So you almost went bust the second time round, but you didn't quite. Had you built up a better support network? Did you have better processes in place? There's that sort of curved journey of ups and downs through the life of an entrepreneur, but every I think time I, it gets a bit better. So what was better this time? Well,
0: I think usually I mean, the, the answer to most questions is, 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 is people. Effectively, what happened is that we ended up with a hell of a lot of stock, women's and children's clothing that, that we couldn't sell. So we had about nine million quid's worth of stock. The business, you know, it had been when, when the when the new chief exec came in, we were doing forty million pounds sales, making four million pounds profit. So again, you know, great business, moved on a lot from eleven eleven years earlier, but we ended up with this stock that we couldn't sell. And and I, and I think in a, in a in a clothing business or a fashion business, the one thing that really kills you is having stock that you can't sell because that is is cash tied up, and the cash dries up and 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 you go bust. And I had a small loan. I'd bought some... Pete Higgins used to have 27%. And when he left, I'd bought 22% of his 27%. which, And I'd taken a small amount of debt for that. And Nat West had lent me the money, or Royal, or Royal Bank of Scotland, whatever they were then called. They were extremely aggressive. And what I did is I brought in a, a finance director who was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, he could juggle suppliers, the bank he was just, you know, he was brutal. He was incredibly scary, but an absolutely lovely guy. And he, over the next two years, guided us through this, you know, the bank being incredibly aggressive, saying they'd carry on lending us the money, but they wanted 30% of the equity. I mean, they just, they, they behaved absolutely disgracefully.
1: So, perfect segue. One of our sponsors for Series 2, gratefully, is Lafosse, who are recruiters and headhunters. And Thought you, is... I thought you
0: were going to say RBS. That's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we haven't got that much money for the series, sadly. They don't have um, much money either. No, that's true. That's <laughs> um, because uh, they keep loaning it to Nick and he keeps always going bust with it. So, you just mentioned great people the second time round. Where did you go to find great people? How did you, what did you look for? And you know, you've also mentioned um, about the people that work for you and how happy they are. Where do you go to find these great people?
0: As an entrepreneur, it's a really difficult one because you know really great people with the best will in the world are going to be very hard to find. If A, you're not going to pay them any money, and B, you're not going to give them any equity. And I always knew I wasn't going to give any equity because I'm never going to sell the business, so the equity is effectively never really worth anything. So I'm not going to give any equity. And when you have a little business and you're struggling away, it's very hard to pay people a lot of money. So to pay to to find great people to come to you with no money and no equities is is very hard. So at the beginning, really like shirts. They have to. They have to really like shirts. Or you have to just. You have to get them really young, before everybody else thinks they're a great person. And I think that comes down to it's sort of it's that, just that emotional intelligence. Oh, now I'm getting the you know the interest in the children's business.
1: You, know, you start training them <laughs> as their <laughs> six or seven year olds Turn to them love into, shirts, make love their shirts, exactly. and bring, bring them on. Yeah, you and Steve Redgrave with that.
0: <laughs> <structure>. <laughs> so I think, but I think it, so. So you. I mean, I, I sort of I can't quite remember what the cliche is, but but you 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 hire for attitude and and train for you know you hire, you hire hire attitude basically not not what you they, what, the they what they've done train for skills whatever it is sure it's such a great cliche I can't remember it but it's it, so it's about attitude so so you know you 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 hire young people who just shared that sort of enthusiasm and as you get bigger you can then hire you can hire great people as when you can, when you when you can afford it you can hire great people. Hey
1: guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on Contour.space. Okay, so moving on a little bit towards the, uh, the the other side of things. So like you've mentioned two busts. You've mentioned also a uh, new attitude on learning how not to die and a, uh, yeah. a, a vegan diet mixed with no alcohol, although that does come off the back of drinking too much rum on holiday, which is everyone's immediate reaction after that. So we'll see if that one sticks when we catch up with you later in the year. But what do you do to unwind? Have you ever been the type of person who, you know, goes for long country walks? Do you meditate? One of our sponsors is Calm.com. And, you know, that's obviously all about finding time for mindfulness for yourself. So how's your attitude towards these things developed over time?
0: I'm quite impatient, and I find I can't concentrate on nothing for very long. So I find mindfulness quite difficult. And I find meditation quite difficult, but I think you know everybody does when they first start, but you have to persevere, and it's funny because on the one hand, I see myself as one of life's great perseverers. I should be able to do it, but I suppose you have to want to do something if if you want to do something, then I suppose you'll do it and And I guess I don't really want to do that so what i I do love i mean I like going for I like going for walks, um and you've got pets as well, so you go we've got a lot them. of pets, we've got a lot of pets, we've got two pigs, nine horses, four dogs. One fish, two fish. You don't go for walks with a fish, though? I'm not keen on the fish, actually. The fish are pain. <laughs> any cats? Just put them near the fish. No cats. Although we've got a lot of rats, and I'd quite like I quite like cats to get rid of the rats. There you go. Someone, someone who's seen <laughs> the uh, the food chain <laughs> chart and understands where
1: to go next. Okay, so have you? You know, you didn't actually answer this earlier, but have you had any um, mentors? I mean, you're probably the first person ever who's used NatWest as the
2: answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> when it
1: came up. But Assuming that that doesn't necessarily count.
0: Have you had anyone that's really helped held your hand and helped you at any points the funny thing is is I mean the answer that's no and it sounds funny saying that in in 2018 because you know the whole mentor thing has become a big deal well you yourself have said that you you are now really passionate about helping other people so obviously it does motivate you in some way too yeah well I like to motivate people to start their own business I don't think I'm a great one-on-one mentor because I'm a bit impatient but when I started my business, you know, not many people starting their own business, and and the the idea the idea of a mentor just didn't really exist, you know, it just wasn't something nobody had, and people just didn't have mentors. Now, you know, everybody's got mentors, and I and I think everyone's got mentors for a very good reason because, you know, I have made a lot of mistakes, and I, and I can tell people about those the, those mistakes, and it's a bit like you know with my wife, you know, she started her business, you know, a few years after I started mine, by which point I'd made a lot of mistakes, and. I probably did help her in the early years to not make those mistakes. So in a way, I was a bit of a mentor to her. Have you ever had any
1: clashes with that? You know, it's obviously such a fine line when talking to a loved one or giving advice and being helpful and being being received as patronising when you're trying to actually help. Have you ever had
0: any conflict there? Not really. You know, I think I mean, you know, when I was at school my only real claim to fame at school was that I, I, I never called anybody sir. I didn't like anybody telling me what to do. So that and then in, in a way that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start my own business. I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. I wanted to have my own business because it put me in control of my own destiny. So I've always been very acutely aware of that in other people. You know, if you know, I'm sure Chrissy wouldn't want me to tell her what to do.
1: I mean, you've got such a, you know, on the subject of your wife, you've got such a high-achieving partner in crime. You know, does that ever intimidate you? Do, do you have any sort I, of I am always very, battles? very intimidated by
0: my wife. Okay, yeah, good. But I, said, said like every husband I walk, ever. I walk a few steps behind her and it's all absolutely
1: fine. Good. Okay, fine. <laughs> Before we leave the subject of mentorship, etc., you know, other than from NatWest, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think probably...
0: Without wanting to repeat myself, but stick to the knitting. Stick to the knitting. Stick to the knitting. Is that a
1: cliche? I don't think I've ever heard that one before. Have you never heard that? No, no. I've not heard it. I Am know. I showing
0: my age? Yeah, definitely. If you've got anybody who's listening who's over about 70, they'll, 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 they'll know that. Well, I think podcasts sort of... are
1: very popular with people over <laughs> 70s. We're fine. I also noticed your, uh, your pun earlier of uh, a stitch up. So uh, the knitting and the stitch up. Perfect.
0: Stick to the knitting is just, it's, it's basically um, stick to what you know and do it really well. I want to be the best shirt business in the world. But I think one of the really important things, I think, with people who want to have their own business is to be very clear in their mind and make sure everybody in their organisation, however small, and if it's just them, fine, but if it's other people, be really clear about what you're trying to do. It's I suppose it's related to stick to the knitting, but it, it, it's this idea of, you know, I talk to people who want to start their own business I say, what are you going to do? And after five minutes of them rabbiting on, I think I haven't got a clue what they're trying to do. You know, it's so bloody complicated. You know, if you ask me, what do, does Charles Tirrett do? We make it easy for men to dress well. If you went into NASA in the 1960s, you say, what do they do? The, the personal reception, they say, I'm putting them out on the moon. And and that's where we, we sort of took that from. It, it's, it's a one-liner that is absolutely everybody in the organization. We are making it easy for men to dress well. And so whatever decision you're making through every single day of every single week, you're asking yourself, is this making it easier for men to dress well? And then the whole organisation moves in the same direction. And, and effectively, you're, you're all sticking to the knitting. Perhaps you could work with Elon Musk and, uh, you know, make sure you're putting a man <laughs> on Mars,
1: but the best dressed man on Mars. You know, that could be the, the next a, thing. In, in a little Tesla. In a yeah, little exactly. Tesla. Coming on to the final part now. So um, a little bit, obviously, we've touched on this anyway, but what is your opinion on work-life balance? I mean, it sounds to me like there is no such thing. You just love working. I it think is there is
0: there, there there is no such thing. You know, it's very important to have a broad range of interests. I think, and it's important to love doing different things. You know, I, I absolutely love my business, but I don't run it. So I do You're chairman now. Correct. I'm chairman. Yeah, and it's done far better since I stopped running it. You know,
2: you, there are much better people to run it than, than than me. Does it does it take a a little bit of discipline to not get involved or when you originally did that because presumably like you were saying about the catalogue it annoys you when you don't have the collar stiffness in there but how much do you go right we need to do that yeah you can't you, you it does take discipline and, and and in many ways that
0: first chief exec I had who was the guy from Ralph Lauren which didn't work out it didn't work out because we didn't really set the ground rules and, and in many ways we sort of both ran the business you know I was in the office a lot we shared an office together it's almost it's almost like parenting you know, if, if, if he'd say no to something, they'd come and say to me the same question without telling me that he'd said no and I'd say yes. And then you get this awful sort of conflict. You learn, I mean, I learned pretty quickly that, you know, his job is to is to drive the business forward, to, you know, make it grow and make it more successful. And if I'm holding one hand behind his back and, and telling him to do something, you know, and it doesn't work, it, it's sort of being slightly unfair on him. So he has to run it. If it doesn't work, then he goes and I get somebody else. But it's his responsibility.
1: So now I'm just, you know, moving forward into, I guess, you know, how you're, you're reading a book currently on how to stay alive for as long as you possibly can. And hopefully the compound wealth continues to make you successful. So you can, I presume, give back to the community. So do you do a lot of
0: investing? I do quite a lot of investing. What kind of businesses? All sorts, actually, all sorts. I had this great thing, which I loved, which is called Student Upstarts, actually, which was just investing small amounts of money, in students who had a back of the envelope idea, and it would basically be giving them fifteen thousand quid, that first fifteen thousand quid, for eight percent of the business, which wasn't really a business at the time, and off they'd go, and it would buy them a computer and a bit of mark, you know, a bit of whatever they wanted to spend it on, and I love that because you know, as an entrepreneur, that's what you love that moment when a business is created, rather than you know, a lot of private equity guys you know, they wouldn't invest in anything until it sort of you know got to a certain size and the, the chance of success is sort of so much higher. But as an entrepreneur, that's not really what I'm interested in. It's about creating something that exists rather than not exists.
1: And have you ever sat around and pondered philosophically how your own attitude towards ownership might be at odds with investing? So are there, for example, businesses you'd love to invest in because you believe in the team, you believe in the idea, and you think it's phenomenal, but it's going to be a venture cap? Type business, and therefore it's just so at odds with how you think a business should be run. It isn't an opportunity anymore. How have you? How has being an investor changed your perspective a little bit on the opportunity? Well, I think I mean
0: what I what I tend to do when when I invest in businesses, if if I think they're really good, the first thing I say to people is I say you shouldn't be taking my money. You know, you shouldn't be taking anybody's money. You know, I love your business. I think it's going to do really well. But, you know, you shouldn't be taking outside investment because you're going to regret it later on, which is slightly strange. But when you say regret it later on, usually
1: the reasons you regret a business are because of the investors. And if all the investors are as good as you are about, you know, having principles and understanding as an entrepreneur, then technically they might not have those many problems.
0: No, but I think there are not many businesses where I take a majority stake. Typically, as soon as people open the doors to investment, it's the thin end of the wedge. They're basically going to sell the business. Which, so I suppose, I mean, the conversation is—it goes along the lines of, you know, you shouldn't take investment. You're got to take, if you're taking investment, you've got to realize that you're going to be selling the business in a few years' time. You're not going to be building a business for the long term. And some people, that's what they want to do. And that's, you know, I'm not going to tell them what's right and what's wrong. And what I've done is not necessarily right. And A lot of people look at me and think what a sado! you know he's been flogging shirts for 32 years when you know life's not a dress rehearsal you only get one chance at this go and do lots of different things life's not a dress rehearsal is the bane interview question <laughs> i know it because
1: that's what basically didn't get me in so just to prove that you obviously have left your uh, your mark there and uh, kept kept a bit of dna from them <laughs> <laughs> okay so the last question is a two-parter One, what is the future like for uh, menswear and where does Charles Tirith fit into that matrix? And two, if you could do it all again, what would you do differently and why?
0: Okay, the first part is, you know, 32 years in, I feel more excited about the business than I've ever felt over the last 32 years. Now, that's a bit of the entrepreneur in me speaking. And I suppose even if I was about to go bust, I'd probably still say that because it just you've got to be positive and you've got to be glass half full. But I think in menswear, you know, if I if I say to you, who is the global menswear leader? What is the answer? I mean there isn't really an answer. There's nobody you've got sort of, you know, I don't know, Hugo Boss, it's sort of pretty global and but quite high fashion and quite edgy. You know, this is sort of good really proper, good quality, decent suits, shirts, ties, casual wear for for, for the weekend. And I don't think there's anybody, you know, I mean, there is nobody who does it who is a global menswear business. And I think that is, you know, Ralph Lauren sort of does it, but they're a bit sort of, you know, they're they're diversified and they're women's and children's and home and it's more of a lifestyle brand. And and I think there is an opportunity for a company to be a global menswear brand. And I think that's um, really exciting. You know, there's no reason why we can't, somebody's going to do it. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be us. So, you know, I feel very excited about the business. So what countries do you operate in currently? Well, our main countries are the US. We're bigger in the US than we are in the UK. We're in the US, UK, Australia and Germany. And then we've just launched in France and Canada. And we have about to launch in New Zealand and uh, the Netherlands. So global domination does await. You must be pretty excited. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. I mean, I think it, it's it's a... um. Going back to some of my sort of advice earlier, I mean, it really is about focus. In many in many, in many ways, we, we, we went overseas before we should have done. And we ended up taking our eye off the ball in the UK and other people came along in the UK and stole the shirt market. So in a way, one of the companies I admire most in, 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 in the world is, I can't remember the name of them actually even, but it's a cement company in Omaha, or it might even be Ohio, <laughs> But they are but basically it's a you know it's a three billion dollar business selling cement, and they don't sell a single bit of cement outside Omaha or ohio and I think that is very clever to absolutely dominate your whole home market It makes a very solid business and in a way, what I did is I didn't dominate my home market and went abroad, and it's very sexy, and it sounds great to sort of say we're going abroad in reality it's quite often it's much better to focus on your home market. But, but I think there is an opportunity for, 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 for global domination. Not that I want to sound like Dr. Evil.
1: No, indeed. But you are sitting there with a, a big white cat that you've been stroking the whole <laughs> time.
0: And it's making us both uncomfortable. So, <laughs>
1: and the second part
0: of the question was, um, if you could do it all again, what would you do differently and why? Gosh, I, know, I wish I hadn't done the stupid things I did that made me go bust. And I wish I hadn't gone into children's. and. But they were all lessons to you. They, they, they were sort of all lessons you know, life is about creating memories. And in many ways, I remember the bad times more than I remember the good times. And in a way, you can look back at them and laugh about them at the time. They're not very funny at all. But they make you what you are. And so, you know, you, you, I think you need to try not to have regrets. You have to learn from mistakes and take them forward and, and just build up that memory bank of, of funny stories. Super. Listen, Nick, you've been an awesome guest. Thank you
1: very much for braving the cold and snow to join us today. And um, I believe you've got uh, a meeting you need to head to, which is only two stops away on the Tube, as we discussed everything in London. It's just two stops away.
0: So thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders.
0: I don't really care where you've worked. I don't care where you've been to university. What I actually care is, are you smart? If the shit hits the fan, are you going to get me out of it? Let's build a place that people enjoy spending time and then they don't see it like work. So that's what we set out to do. I think actually raising money is a bullshit milestone that people celebrate. We didn't need the money, but I wanted a buffer. Most importantly, I got angels that were experts in things that are part of the vision for
2: BuildPath.
1: Well, if listening to the soft, some might say posh, British voice of the mild-mannered and calm Nick Wheeler this week was too gentle for you. Next week, we've got the very vocal, very dynamic and very northern and rather opinionated Alexandra De Pledge, who started the marketplace business Hassle.com with no technical or industry expertise, which she then sold for a reported £30 million and is now in reinventing the way home extensions and more are designed and built with Resi, architecture reimagined for the 20th 21st century. She's bold, brash, and has pretty much no filter whatsoever. So if you want to hear a great story and spit out some of your morning tea or coffee out in a mix of shock and laughter at her responses, then tune in or you'll miss out. See you next
2: week. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview.
1: Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We
2: run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.